Today, we're following up on this new series uh, on the end times called Beauty and the Beast. And last week, I shared an introduction. If you didn't hear it, I'd encourage you to go back and maybe watch online to to get more in depth to um, the entry into this series, because um, there's a lot of controversy when you approach something like this. One of the reasons I've hesitated is because of all the variations within views. There's some major views. You could say there's three or four major views, even within them. um, There's there's all kinds of subgroups within each one of those. It can be very confusing for people. But I want this to be an introduction into eschatology, the study of last things, to where you can actually feel like, hey, I want to get to know more about these things. I maybe, maybe I don't have all the answers. Like, like, I don't know what's going to happen when Jesus comes, or I don't know what's going to happen when I die, or those kinds of things. You ought to know about it. There's a lot in Scripture about all those subjects. But there's also some different viewpoints among Bible um, teachers, all through history, there have been various viewpoints of people who say, I see this in the scriptures. Someone says, I look at the scriptures, but I see this. And they don't necessarily line up together. I mean, that's okay. We want to have respect for someone who says, you know, I don't believe the way you do. You may not believe the way I do. That's okay. We don't make it a test of fellowship to have the same end times view in our church. But we do ask you to do this. Make sure whatever view you hold comes from scripture. Dive into scripture, and you need to discard things that are assumptions or things that we've just heard over the years, and really be like the Bereans who Paul says they studied the scriptures to see if these things were true. I'll tell you this, I may not have things right, but I will put in a lot of time into study, and I will never preach anything I personally am not convicted of. Now, conviction by itself doesn't make something true. Someone could say, like, I really believe Jesus is coming next year, doesn't make it true. I really believe what I see in Scripture. Well, that doesn't make it true. doesn't matter how many Bible degrees you have. doesn't matter what denomination you've come from. doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how long you've studied this subject. What matters really is what does God say? And the good thing is you can be a new believer and study the Scriptures and learn some very profound things. So don't be intimidated thinking, uh, how, how can I stand against the pastor or this person over here or this radio preacher? Um, who am I to challenge them? Well, people have gotten things wrong all through history all through church history. And people have changed views and learned new things and and understood different cultural backgrounds. So study, study. In fact, we want to be humble and say, maybe that's a new way of looking at this. I'm going to have to dig a little deeper on this subject. We want to be humble. And above all, we want to apply what we're learning. That's the ultimate goal. A lot of this stuff really doesn't matter where you land. I mean, there's there's some minor things I think can affect how you live out your Christian life and how you view the nation of Israel or or, or how you view the signs of the times or who the Antichrist may be and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, this is the theme we had last week. I would say this is the theme that that I'll echo all through this series. We, we We are in the last days. Peter said it when the Holy Spirit came. That was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. We are living. We've been living for 2,000 years in the last day, but we want to live for the last day. This day that scripture says is really a climactic day. And I shared with you at the end of the um, message last week a, a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3, which really smashes a lot of stuff together. The coming of Christ, uh, the end of the offer of salvation for people. God is patient, not wanting to any perish, but you know, there's a limited time. God's patience will come to an end. And when that day comes, he says he's going he's to renovate the world. So he's going he's he's to burn the world, remake it. It's gonna be, well, there's going to be a new earth and a new heavens. And it seems like, wow, all that's happening like that Well, get this. Peter says right in the midst of that passage, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And we may think of something like in our time frame, like this is is what what happens in a 24-hour day, and and that's not God's perspective. It could be that God's day, the day of the Lord, could be a thousand years, a millennium worth of time. So uh, we don't want to get bogged down in simply our human understanding, our Western world understanding of things. 
But I want to share with you, just to launch in today's topic on the the return of Christ, a passage from Acts chapter 1. Jesus had risen from the dead. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. He teaches the disciples some things and gives them a mission. He goes into heaven and there appears two men dressed in white. Now we assume they're angels. And here's what they say. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus left on the clouds, he's coming again on the clouds. And ever since that day, people have looked forward to Christ's return. You can look at the early church, they thought Jesus would return in their generation. And there's been countless generations since then who've said, I really believe Jesus is coming in our generation. There are people today who really believe Jesus is coming in our generation. That's okay, doesn't make it right. All those people in the past were wrong. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But the fact is there's always been this expectation and that's a good thing. God wants us to. In fact, we'll talk the coming weeks of Jesus saying, you know, you need to be ready when I come back. Be about the things I've called you to do. That's the main thing. But I indeed in coming again. Now, here's where there's some confusion or disagreement. When Jesus returns, is he coming once or coming twice? That's the debate. Because some would say, well, I, I, it's just one big grand event. And others say, no, no, there's a, a rapture that's separate from the second coming. And that's the view you've probably seen if you've uh, read any of the left behind books or watched those movies. That's the view that's presented there. And there's good reason that people hold to that view. I want to share with you reasons for kind of and reasons against. Let you evaluate. Let you be motivated to dig into scripture. If you wanted me to give you the answers, tough luck. I told you last week, you're going to leave with more questions than answers because I want to motivate you to dig in. It's too easy to listen to someone else give you the answers. It's too easy. We want to dig in and wrestle with the hard things of Scripture. So the rapture and the second coming, different events. Let me share, first of all, something called prophetic perspective. Prophetic perspective means that when prophets spoke things, they didn't always know how it would play out. And they didn't know whether there were time gaps in things. For example, when they prophesied that that the Messiah would come, the assumption was the Messiah will come, he'll set up an earthly kingdom, and and then we'll go into the future period of time. They didn't know that Jesus would actually leave and then come back again, which is why we call it the second coming, the first advent, the second advent. They couldn't see that. It's like looking at mountain peaks and they're all lined up together and you see one, but if you go from the side, you're like, oh, oh no, there's actually two there. There's two, or, or there could be more. That's prophetic perspective. It's like things get condensed in time. I remember the first time I um, hiked up the Manitou incline. Anybody here do that? That steep incline. You know, you see that, that what looks like the top and you go, oh my goodness, you know, almost there. And then you get there and you go, that's the false top. That's not the end. There's another like 100 yards to go. And you're always defeated because you thought you were getting to the top. But you couldn't see it because it was hidden behind the first kind of hump there. That's kind of like uh, prophetic perspective. You see this, you don't see there. There's also a, a prophetic perspective in that prophecies oftentimes have an echo fulfillment. So there are times where, uh, for example, David writes his own experiences of life in the Psalms. Jesus comes along and quotes that as if it was happening to him. And yet David said it was happening to him back then. It's, it's, it's an echo fulfillment. There are things about the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus um, predicted in Matthew 24. And, and people often say, well, did that happen back in the first century? There's, there's a view of the end time that says all those things have already happened. It's already passed. Others say, no, no, it's all about the future. It's very likely both. 
There, there are some things that were fulfilled right then and there's echo fulfillment in the future. And so that's a prophetic perspective, which just so you know, it's very possible when God says, hey, I'm coming, it's not just once, there's twice. Two comings, a rapture and a second coming. Secondly, there's this issue of scripture harmonizing. Normally when you see things in scripture that are um, similar events, you start to put them together and say, do these things harmonize? Um, Matthew writes about the birth of Christ, and then Luke writes a different angle of the birth of Christ. You go, okay, was, were there two babies born? Because there's some differences. But, but we have no problem harmonizing them, saying, well, Matthew has a reason for writing what he's writing and the background stories he tells. Same thing with Luke. Luke's try, Luke has an, a, an agenda with his gospel. He's picking out certain things to focus on, but they definitely dovetail and are, um, are harmonized. Same thing with the resurrection of Christ. People go, well, one gospel says there was two angels at the tomb and another says there's one. So it must be telling different stories or somebody's wrong. Well, think of it if you're in an accident and you report the details of the accident and someone else sees the accident and because their state of mind or their purpose is different, they write some different things. They say there's four cars there and you go, oh, there's eight cars there. You go, well, two different events. No, no, no. They're just reporting. They didn't say the totality of all the cars. They said, I saw four cars there. There may have been a few more, but I know that at least four there. They're, those events start to harmonize. And someone else says, I saw them doing this, and I saw them doing that, and these people were there. Well, I saw the, those persons there. And you say, well, you know, they aren't talking about two different events. They're talking about the same event, maybe from a different perspective. So there are a lot of stories in Scripture that, that harmonize, even though there's some different details. You know, there's actually books called Harmonies of the Gospel, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, and they harmonize those three books. John's a little different, has different stories, but those three all harmonize. But when you read through the Gospels, then you come across stories like the turning of the tables in the temple, and you go, these sound like very different events. And it's actually believed that there were two separate events where Jesus actually turned the tables in the temple. Same thing with the feeding of the masses. It says over here that Jesus fed 5,000 men. Over here it says he fed 4,000 men. It says over here he was in one region. Over here it says he was in a different region. Over here it says there was this many baskets collected afterwards. Over here it says there was a different amount of baskets collected. Uh, maybe they're different events. Maybe Jesus did this more than once. At least there's twice recorded in Scripture, so they're very different events. So when you look at the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, there are people look at it and go, uh, we don't see these things harmonizing. There's enough differences to where it certainly sounds like different events. Now, here's some of the differences that are pointed out, the apparent differences. One, the rapture is a partial return, and the second coming is a full return, meaning Jesus comes partway, meets believers in the air, takes his church, they go to heaven, seven years later, comes again, all the way to the earth with believers, sets foot on the ground. Two different events. One's secret, one's public. The rapture happens very secretly. We don't, we don't know what's happening, really. We just kind of get extracted from the earth. Unbelievers have no clue what's happening. But the other, unbelievers are very aware. Every eye will see, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will mourn when they see him. Third, uh, the first, the rapture is a return for believers. But then the other is the return with believers. Fourth, the purpose is to spare the believers from the tribulation, to, to rescue them from what's to come, where the, where the second coming is to punish unbelievers, to bring judgment on the world. Fifth, the first is imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. It could happen this afternoon. It could happen. Nothing has to happen before the rapture, where the second coming has some things that must happen before Jesus returns. And there's valid biblical backing 
for all of this. Now, it's not shared by everybody. I would say it's, it's, we're probably split in the world half and half of those who see it that way, those who see it a different way. That's this other side is, are they, are they actually different descriptions of the same event, of the same event? Are they actually speaking of one event? Now, it's been argued that the words, there's three words that refer to Jesus coming, actually mean different things and, and refer to the, the different events. That one refers to the rapture, the others refer to the second coming. But that's been kind of uh, dismissed over the years from a lot of Bible scholars because these words are actually used sometimes even together in some passages. But here's the three words. First one is apocalypsis, which means revelation. It's from what you see in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John. It means unveiling. It means something that is before you has kind of the veil taken off. And so Jesus is revealed. Is Jesus present in the world? Yes, we don't see him. He's going to be unveiled in a way like we've never seen him before. I remember the first time I was, in, uh, I was informed of a gender reveal party. I got a little nervous. I thought, are they going to reveal their gender? I don't know. I don't know if I like this. Um, I don't know if I, if I can celebrate this or not. What's, what's this all about? Is this something new in our culture? And I found out it was all about the baby. That, that this baby's gender was going to be revealed and they'll do with something blue or something pink. And uh, it's a celebration. But they're not announcing the pregnancy. It's a revelation of the gender. It's an unveiling. Second word is epiphania, which means appearance or manifestation. Now, it's similar to a revelation, but it has to do with someone arriving. Revelation is more of something that's already there being, being unveiled. This is someone arriving in a pretty grand appearance. In fact, if we, we look last week um, at the prophecy from Joel, the glorious day of the Lord, the glo- there's a glorious appearing of the Lord, his epiphania. It's, it has to do with, with gr- grandeur and glory and sometimes light. It's, it, it causes the onlooker to be in awe. Okay, there's a, there's a response to that. Third word, the most common word though, is parousia, which means coming, means presence, God's presence. It's, it's Jesus' actual presence, tangible presence with his people. It's used in other literature of that time um, for the arrival of a king or an emperor. Someone, someone's very honored. So Jesus is coming. Now, as I said, uh, these words are used sometimes interchangeably. Second Thessalonians actually uses parousia and epiphania in the, in the very same sentence, speaking of the return of Christ. John Walverd, who was president of Dallas Theological Seminary, very, um, uh, very staunch premillennialist, dispensational premillennialist, says these three words are descriptive of both the rapture and glorious return of Christ to the earth, meaning it can refer to either event. It doesn't really tell us if it's one event or two because it's, it could be either. Those words describe both of those kinds of events. Now, I would say from my own studies that the differences aren't so clear cut. They aren't so obvious. People sometimes say, well, if you just read the Bible, I've read the Bible and I have a lot of questions. And, and it may seem that these are different events, but I find a lot of, a lot of ways these two, these two pictures harmonize. And I'm going to go to the classic rapture passage, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You will not find the word rapture in your Bible. It's actually a Latin word found in the Latin Vulgate, which is a, a Latin translation of Scripture. And it's when you hear the word caught up, that's, that's the word where rapture comes from in the Latin language. So it's, when someone says, well, it's not a biblical word. It's a biblical concept, just like Trinity it's a biblical concept. It's, it actually is in the Bible, just not your Bible. If you were Latin, it would be in your Bible. So here, here's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who are others who do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You guys know that Jesus rose. That was a miracle. There's another miracle coming. He's going to come again. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The, the Thessalonian believers had heard about Jesus' return, but had a fear. What about, what about my loved ones who've already died? Are they going to miss out on this? Or have they, did they not get a ticket to this event? And, and Paul says, wait, wait, no. No, they're going to get front row seats. Because when Jesus comes, they're going up first to meet him. And they'll be miraculously transformed. It would be like they're going to awake from the sleep. Now, some say, well, the Bible teaches soul sleep here, which means when you die, you go into kind of a, a coma. And then when Jesus returns, you'll awake from the coma to, to be with him. But Paul says in Philippians, to be absent from the body is to beware, present with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So our belief is that when when you die or when your loved ones in the Lord have died, they go to be with the Lord. Now, they have not received, according to scripture, at least when I read it, the resurrected body yet. So what kind of body will they have? I don't know. They're not going to be in their earthly body. That's already been buried or cremated or whatever. They're not going to be in that body, and they're not yet in their resurrected uh, immortal body, but they'll be in some new form. But when Paul writes about this new body, this transformation that takes place of the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. There's the trumpet sound again. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And I was in Arizona as a children's pastor. We had a sign placed over the nursery with this scripture, just a portion of the scripture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Great verse for a nursery, right? (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we're all going to get changed. Now, notice this. When, When Jesus comes, Paul says, he will bring with him believers who've already been raised. That there's some time lapse in between this. That the dead in Christ have been raised, changed, they meet the Lord, then they and the Lord meet us, or we go to meet them. There's a, there's a time lapse, there's an there's a order here that takes place. There are people coming with the Lord, believers coming with the Lord, if you're alive and go to meet with them, that you'll be seeing, you'll be connected with on that day. Um, but where do they go? Now here's something that gets read into scripture. The assumption is they turn around and go to heaven. That's not what the verse says. It doesn't say where they go. So it's an assumption. It may be a theological um, position of where they go, but just look at it. What does it say? It doesn't say where they go. Could they go to heaven? Of course they could go to heaven. Could they go to earth? I think that's a real possibility because in this passage, Paul presents the coming of the Lord in such a way that to me sounds so dramatic. The cry of command the voice of an archangel and the trumpet. 
Now, if God is wanting to secretly draw Christians from the earth, either, either that's like a dog whistle that only believers hear, or it is a grand event that's, that's being heard by many people. And by the way, trumpets were used to announce significant events, from a feast to the declaration of war. Might this be a declaration of war? Might this be Jesus saying, it is time to bring an end to all the rebellion and sin in this world? And I say that, uh, there'll be some other scriptures that'll tie into that, um, because it seems that God is drawing together his army, his people, who's on the Lord's side and who's not. You know, if God is gathering in heaven all the believers with Jesus, it's gonna be very clear to know who's on the Lord's side and who's not. If you didn't make it, then you're on the other side. In fact, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, I'm not anti-Christian, I'm not, I don't hate God. It's not about hating God. Jesus said, if, if, if you're not with me, you're against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Are you gathering with me? Are you engaged in my mission? If not, then you're against me. And you won't be raptured up to be with me. Jesus says that after a time of tribulation, this is Matthew 24, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now this again, it raises, is this describing a different event or the same one? There are similarities. There's a trumpet call, there's angelic Figures gathering the, the believers. So is this the same or is it, it different? It sounds very similar to me. But the question may be, well, why would God then send Jesus just to go part way? As I already told you, maybe to separate the wheat from the tares. But also, think about this. Satan is called, in Ephesians 2, the ruler of the prince of the air. And it could be that Jesus is meeting in the air, in the atmosphere, to announce at ground zero, your day's coming to an end, buddy. I'm the ruler of the air. This is my domain. It could be there that he, he launches the, kind of the first salvo, this cosmic reason. You know, that word that's meet, meet the Lord in the air, is also used, it's only used two times in the New Testament. One of those is Acts chapter 28, where the believers actually went out of Rome to meet Paul to then bring him back into the city. And this is a view that, that a lot of scholars have concluded is, is that believers meet the Lord then to return back here. You say, why? Because, because the, the battle is coming. Now, that's an end times view that you say, well, that's not supposed to happen for, for many, many years. If that's your view, yes. But, it, but another view says, no, this is, the, this is the beginning of the end. When you go into the second chapter of Paul's letter, he says that, that here's what God's going to do for you. He will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when, when the Lord Jesus is revealed, that's the word apocalypse, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now again, is that the same event? Is that different? Is it another perspective of the unbeliever looking at this kind of event like, well, this is what's gonna happen to me when, when the Lord comes or is it speaking of a later event, you know, years later, seven years, at least seven years later? It's granting relief to them. They're going, they going to have relief on this day. It comes after, according to him, a time of affliction. Is this the tribulation? Some kind of a tribulation. Maybe not what's called the great tribulation. 
But the angels are coming to bring vengeance on those who persecuted God's people and who've rejected him. He talks more about it in the very next chapter. Again, Paul's in 2 Thessalonians. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is connected to his coming. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This parousia, this coming of the Lord, is called the day of the Lord, a climactic day. He says it will not happen until two things, a rebellion and the man of lawlessness be revealed. People ask me, Pastor, do you believe the rapture could happen at any moment? I'd say, if I don't understand, if I misunderstand scripture, yes, it could but it seems to me like there are some things that have to happen first. And this is, this is two of them, a, a major rebellion, an apostasy, some would say, and the revelation of this lawless one who many believe to be the Antichrist, someone who's empowered by Satan to do very powerful things. It says in, again, just a few verses later, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. People who reject the truth become very gullible. And all of a sudden you hear of someone who's able to do what seems to be very miraculous things and you go, see, why do I need to believe Jesus? Because this guru... I saw him on PBS, he's really good, does some wonderful things. I believe that person because you made yourself gullible. When you reject the truth, it opens you up to a lot of other beliefs. But this person will be very powerful, very strong in teaching to deceive people. Now, we go another, a little bit later. Uh, no, actually we go backwards, back to the end of the first letter of Thessalonians. Where, where Paul writes again, this is the picture of the thief in the night coming. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's the rapture passage, the thief in the night coming. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. It says the day of the Lord will come, it's coming like a thief in the night. I mentioned last week, it is not that the thief sneaks in, it's that he's coming unannounced. It's, it's an unannounced. And unbelievers will be unprepared. They, they, they will be unprepared for that day because they don't think it's coming. And when it comes, it's gonna, it's gonna be a shock. But for believers, we're gonna say, you know, we've been, we've been praying for this. We've been crying out, even, come, even so, come Lord Jesus. We've been praying, Maranatha. Yes, this day has come. For us who are believers, it's not gonna surprise us. Shouldn't. But for an unbeliever, yes, they're not ready for it and it will not be a pleasant day. Sudden destruction will come upon them on that day. So when I read these passages, either, you, either Paul switches back and forth between the two without telling us they're all referring to the same event, the same big event. Now, here's probably the bigger question that I run into even when I read this passage or these, these chapters. Why, why should we be concerned about the second coming if we're already raptured? Why is Paul saying when that day comes, you'll get relief from that lawless one when they've already been raptured a few chapters before? Unless... Some of the Thessalonians aren't yet believers and become Christians later and need to be made aware that now when you suffer and go through the great tribulation, you will then have relief 
Because then, because God's gonna send Jesus back for you at that point. But, but that's, that's speculation. That's reading a lot into the scripture. It makes more sense to read this as, as, as Paul's just talking about this one great event that's coming in the future. And I'm just telling you, that's how I read it. That's what I get from the scripture. Now, does it matter? Not a whole lot, probably. Here's what matters. Jesus is coming. And we should expect and be excited about his return. Always. Because the, when Jesus comes and, and say that is the, it's one event, you're ready. And if Jesus comes and it's just a rapture, you're ready. And whichever one it is, you ought to be darn excited about it. Right? I'm so excited about it. And if I say, I, I got it wrong. I thought it was all big one event. And you know what? I just got raptured and I'm going to watch from heaven while all this stuff happens on earth. Hey, I'm good with that too. I'm good with that. We want to be ready. You know, Julie and I have been planning for um, a 35th anniversary, and we built up frequent flyer miles and points for the last few years with COVID going on. And so we're looking at going to a place we've never been to before. Uh, it just kind of came out of the blue a couple weeks ago. We said, what if we went to Prague, Czechoslovakia? By the way, my background, my family background has some Bohemian blood in it. So uh, Slavic background. So it's kind of cool for me to go back and and see, you know, my mother's maiden name was Staluka, which is a, a bohemian name. So we've been looking at that and looking at pictures and watching videos and get kind of excited about, wow, we're going to go to a place we've never been to before. Now, I'll tell you this. When we get there, we'll be even more surprised because we'll see things we didn't know were there. There'll be details about it we never read about. There'll be people we'll meet that'll just be so charming I mean, that's what's fun about traveling the world, going to different places. There's no brochure that can tell you enough about it. And there's, and there's no chapter in the Bible that can tell you enough about what's to come to tell you everything. I can guarantee you this. When Jesus comes again, we all as believers are going to be pleasantly surprised. How incredibly wonderful, how magnificently glorious it will be. And my prayer for you is that you're ready. You are ready. You are prepared for that day. And then if Jesus did come tomorrow, he says, Lord, I'm ready. I don't have any unfinished business. I'm right with you. I've been faithful doing the things you call me to do. I am ready, Lord. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing this song as just a prayer. Second to the last verse of the book of Revelation, the writer of Revelation, John, says this, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you say that with me? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's lift our voices in praise and make that our prayer today that Jesus come because we're excited about that day.
Brides don't sit idle, just sitting, waiting for the, the wedding to happen. They're getting ready and, and getting in shape and getting hair done and all these things and spreading the news with others. And waiting doesn't mean we just sit back and, and sit on a chair and kind of look at the clock, and say, it's not today, maybe tomorrow. We're busy about his work. We want to be that bride who's beautiful. And the scripture says, be holy, be pure. Live in such a way that it's clear which side you're on. Let the people around you know God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. You've got family members that need to know. There should be a sense of urgency because whether it's death or the return of Christ, there'll come a day where they'll have no more chances. And so look about you. Be burdened by that. Be joyful about his coming, but be burdened by the fact that when that comes, things are going to dramatically change. 
So if you need prayer, if you need just to surrender your life to Jesus, and maybe in your own life, you're not right with the Lord, I'm gonna invite our prayer partners just to be up in front here, that, that they'll be here to pray with you and talk with you, kind of advise you what the next steps of your faith could be. So come on up right after I pray here. The rest of you, dig, dig into God's word. Get to know what's to come. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, and it helps us to become ready. Also, when you head out there, take a look at those uh, other ways you can learn and get into God's word this week. But Father, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us enough to give us a glimpse of what's to come. Lord, we still don't know all the details and how it's all gonna happen. We just know it's gonna happen. That the same Jesus who left this earth, who rose from the dead and ascended to heaven will come back one day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.